I had a class in um, in Bible college that um, was it was very narrowly focused class. So I'm not picking on it when I say that it came short on a few things. It, it did what it was intended to do, but it was called an evangelism class. And if you're not familiar with that uh, term, evangelism is is basically you know, we're sharing our faith, we're sharing the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not know him. And so um, where I went to school, I was in um, Boston, and there was no shortage of people to meet and people that did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the professor of the course said, um, not only are you going to learn a system of how-tos and when to say what's and all those kinds of things, but we also want you to come in with some results. And so tied to our grade was um, this um, requirement to lead people to Christ or to convert or whatever uh, term makes sense to you. And so um, there was this kind of dual thing going on in my in my mind and also in the mind of the other students and stuff. On one hand, we knew what we were in Bible college to do, which are where to be trained, where to be ready to lead the church uh, into the, the things of the Lord and stuff. And so it's not a surprise to us that we would be asked then to live what we believe and be willing to share our faith with others and stuff. That should be a no-brainer. Um, but the confusing part was a little bit about the results being tied to a grade because um, we have a, a firm belief in the evangelical circles that the results are up to the Lord. And so the strange part for us was a little bit like, so if we say the right things, in a sense, close the deal in just the right way, people will respond and come to Christ and I can get an A. See the, see the little bit of the, it, it, it messes with your, uh, with your integrity a little bit. And I don't know if that's really what, if, if I could interview the professor now, he'd probably say, no, you missed the point of the assignment. I don't know. But from what I remember over 20 years ago, that that was very much tied to us passing the course. And so what it did was it encouraged us to get outside of ourselves a little bit because now we were being held accountable. And you'd start these conversations with people in the city bus or in the subway or at work or something that that otherwise you would never want to just break right into. But now you've got this kind of external pressure to do so. And so you want to be faithful to it and you want to pass. And so um, you start these conversations and lo and behold... It started to work. We said the right thing at the right time, and people said, yes, I want to pray. And so we would lead people through what's called the sinner's prayer and, and all this. So it was very uh, slick. I'm going to use that word on purpose. It was very slick, very mechanical, very, very perfect. And, and sure enough, the system would work. What I came to realize, though, was that as I tried to follow up with the people that I had met on the bus, they'd give me a phone number. I thought they gave me a phone number. I don't know what it was now. But uh, that, that these opportunities to do what the Bible calls discipleship, what we in the church practice with, once you've led somebody to Christ, you say, now here's the next step and the next step and the next step. And we start to walk through life with people. Those opportunities weren't coming to me. The people that I was meeting in those quick interchanges and interactions would disappear the next day or because it was some contact you met on the city bus, you had no opportunity for a relationship. You had no opportunity for real follow through. Now, I know because of what I said earlier about the results are up to the Lord that he can still use those interactions. And maybe some of those people are still in their faith and growing and that, that could be and that's, that's what we pray for. But all I know is that there was something drastically missing in the process that we were being led down. Like I said, it was a very narrowly focused class and probably on purpose, perhaps. 
But the, the, the idea of closing the deal, if you will, or getting a convert or a prayer to be prayed outside the context of a relationship wasn't really what seemed to be impacting the kingdom for the long run. And so I started thinking about that a lot and going, okay, Lord, I am not, I was never comfortable anyway, and I'm a fairly outgoing person. I'm not very shy or anything, but I still, it was still a little uncomfortable to go through that process. And so I said, Lord, help me to find opportunities where if that person says, yes, I want to follow Jesus, I can be there on day two, or I can be there next week or that sort of thing. Now, there are some that might feel called to those interactions and those quick, you know, you're in a city or you're something like that, or you've, you've only got five minutes with this person, you'll never see him again. And there's nothing wrong with that. This isn't, this isn't to say, shut your mouth if you can't be there next week. Proclaim the, the, the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel and everything, but seek the better opportunities to have that relationship is what we're getting at. And so um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, this, we often um, think of the word evangelism as a separate category. And part of the reason why I needed a class to, to motivate me and get up my gumption and everything is because I've, see if you've had the same mental image. When somebody says witness for Jesus, I immediately go to the most extreme scenario where I'm like Stephen in the book of Acts and I'm standing in a pit proclaiming my very last message and they're taking rocks getting ready to kill me. So I, I picture a witness for Jesus Christ is laying it all on the line. There is no tomorrow. You better say what you're supposed to say and boldly pro- proclaim him and don't back down. And, and, and so that's an inspiring concept. It's a motivating concept, but I also put evangelism on this pedestal that it's something to be achieved or attained for later once I finally get up enough courage, once I'm finally ready to take that stand. And I often forget that evangelism is something that is part of a regular routine. Evangelism is is part of of the lifestyle for the believer. But so often we categorize it. We, I was thinking about one verse. I was like, well, where do I get that, that thought from? And, and I found it in Ephesians 4 where the Bible says where Paul's telling the Ephesians church, he, gave, he says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as evangelists. And I heard that separated and I said, see, that's not me. I don't have that gift. But as I looked closer at the Ephesians 4 passage, I realized he's not talking about gifts. He's talking about offices or responsibilities or roles. And even more specifically, that idea of being an evangelist in that context has more to do with what we would consider like that church planner type or that missionary type or going in, in, into unchartered uh, territory and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that way. And so I had to look at that and go, well, I'm not talking about a gift here, I guess. I guess it's not the kind of thing where I can say, well, I'm more of a teacher type. I'm not really the evangelist. So you go do the evangelism stuff and I'll stay in. I was, I was misappropriately reviewing that verse that way for so many years. And then I came across what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is uh, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus is, is, is launching, if you will, the 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 overall theology or the teaching of what the kingdom of God looks like, what his followers will take on in terms of conduct and, and approach, and they will be bringing glory to God through these ways. And after he goes through a list of what we call the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the humble, all of these things, then he says this, and this is a collective statement he's making in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You, he's saying to a to all of his listeners, you are the salt of the earth. He said, you're the light of the world in the next verse. 
And so it started rounding out my understanding of evangelism a little bit. Rather than seeing it as a distinct gift, it now becomes a calling on all believers, on all followers of God living in the kingdom of Jesus Christ where he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. There's no distinction here being given to, well, you're gifted at being saltier, so we're going to put salt on you, and you're a little bit lighter than the other, so you're going to be light over here, and there's no distinguishing of offices and said, you, as in we, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, these metaphors aren't lost on us. They're not difficult concepts for us to grasp. We know that salt is useful for flavor. And uh, it's, it's helpful to us. It's something that we crave. In fact, no one's ever been told by their doctor to go on a light, low-salt diet and thought that that was a blessing. It's always a sentence. You know, It's like something that's being deprived of you because your body wants it, because your taste buds want it. So we know that salt is great for flavor. In the day, especially of the hearer of Jesus, it was used you know, essentially as a preservative. Uh, they would put it in their meats, make sure things didn't spoil so quickly, and they had a, an abundance of it because of the Dead Sea. There's just this weird salt content thing going on in the Dead Sea that I've heard about from people that have visited. It's just a really concentrated uh, body of water of salt. And so they knew what Jesus was talking about, that, that you are to bring taste to the world, that you are to bring preservation. And, and we in Maine, you know, we know what else salt is good for. We know that it keeps the, the car wash business uh, going because of the way it corrodes. I'm just making sure you're still with me. (laughs) Jesus says this as he continues his statement in verse 13. He says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? How can it come back to be anything useful? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that you and I do a couple of things. If we are the salt of the earth, we do a couple of things. We bring flavor to an otherwise tasteless world system. You know, the world that we live in, the physical beauty and everything is just amazing. And we can really see the Lord's signature all over it as we look around. But the philosophy and the system and the allegiance to the enemy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it, it, it dulls the senses, it, 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 um, it grays out everything so that nothing has any flavor or any pizzazz or anything. Everyone thinks something is attractive. You just picture in your mind's eye what Las Vegas looks like at night. And how much flavor we could say there is, and yet how much emptiness comes out of what they produce. And so Jesus is saying, as the salt of the earth, you and I are to bring a flavor to the world in the context in which we live. I would, I would put that, I would ask the question like this. Do the people in your context, either the people you work with or you go home to or the community you live in or something, do they want you around? Because there's this weird misconception that if you're a strong, faithful Christian, you start making enemies with everybody and they don't want you around. But there's a fine line, perhaps not so fine line, between being a cranky person (laughs) and then being somebody that actually people like to have you around. And and don't misunderstand, because this is going to be balanced out for us in this preservation idea, but but being a tasteful person does not mean a passive person. And so Jesus is saying, as you bring flavor to the world around you, the people in your context will actually say, excuse me, my life is better off 
by having this Christian in my life. I'm not saying I'm believing everything they're doing and I'm not sure why they do what they do or where they go to church and all that kind of stuff. But even short of that, I'm, I'm glad that they're in my life because of the care, or because of the compassion or because of the diligence that they bring. And so Jesus is saying, bring flavor and bring taste to the world around you. But also he's saying, be careful to um, subscribe to the mission to being a preservative in your culture. Where else is this world going to hear truth? Where else is this world going to see purpose? Where else is this world going to see what real fulfillment, where real fulfillment comes from? If you and I aren't taking up the mantle saying we have to preserve truth in our culture and we have to stand for it. We bring moral or intellectual preservation to the society around us. So the first question about taste is, do they want you around? The question about preservation is, do they need you around? Imagine if you were to pull yourself out of that context to picture it's a a work crew, for instance, or it's an office building or it's your home life or something. If I were not here, who would be speaking truth into these people's lives? So ask yourself that question. And if you say, boy, you know what? If I stepped out of the picture, I'm not sure there'd be much difference. Then great. This is why Jesus is saying to everybody, you are the salt of the earth. Because you need to see that that's part of your calling. That isn't one of those gifts on the shelf that says, well, I just don't have that. Jesus didn't segregate that. He says, you as kingdom livers are are salt of the earth. And so then it becomes on us to say, okay, Lord, if you want me to fulfill that role in the context I live, you have to show me which steps to take. And that's what we hope to help you out with. And so he also uses light and light, of course, is very basic. We understand the benefits of light. We understand that it helps us to not stub our toes so much in the middle of the night. If we have a night light or if we have to walk through a wooded path at night, it's better to have a flashlight so you're not tripping over roots. We understand all those things, photosynthesis, and it allows things to grow. So we know that light has extreme physical benefits and the sunlight giving us vitamin D and all these other kinds of things. Am I right on that? Did I the right vitamin? Okay, good. Um, and so, uh, you know, we need our sunlight. We need light for so many other things. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, it wasn't a stretch for them to understand what he was getting at. In fact, he continues to qualify it. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Just picture a, a lit up city. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Simply put, Jesus is saying, my Father is the one that lit you up to begin with. Nobody in their right mind would light a candle and go and tuck it away somewhere. You light it so that it can be seen. And so my Father did not light you up for you to be in the corner somewhere, not giving out the light that he's passed on to you. It's a very basic concept. We understand this. But you and I so seldom take up the mantle, if you will, or the the uh, responsibility of shining a light in the context that we've been placed in, even though the Lord is saying, well, you are there to shine the light towards a better path. You have people all around you that have no clue how to manage their relationships. Why? Because the, the God of this world, the God of this age, has convinced them that the relationship is for them, not for the other person. 
And even less so, that relationship is not for the glory of God. Everywhere you turn, as you leave this place today, you will run into 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people who are looking at relationships through the lens of what can I get out of it. Just bank on that. And so the believer in Jesus Christ, whose, whose kingdom living is, is, is their ultimate purpose and goal, walks into a situation with just that little nugget of truth that shines like a megawatt that says, well, my relationships aren't to satisfy me. They aren't to fulfill me. Or the reason why I approach my health this way is because my body's the temple of the living God. Or the reason why I don't go down this path that feeds towards selfishness is because I don't belong to me, I belong to him. And we start shining what we think are these little sparks. But in the darkest of worlds, they, they, they explode with light. Because they're so, uh, dare I say, offensive, but, but just so in stark contrast to the darkness that most people live in. We shine a light towards a better path. And, you know, the interesting thing, if, if the Lord is really the one that's lit you up and you're trying to put that cover over yourself so you don't shine, I mean, good luck trying to hide it because God's, you know, light is so strong, it won't be able to be contained. And so if you're, if you're kind of living through life going, I hope they don't find me out, <laughs> you're on the wrong end of the spectrum about why you even signed up for this life to begin with. He didn't light you up just to put you in a closet or in a corner or to put a covering over you. And, and very closely related to the preservation of salt, we have to understand that the light that we emanate combats deceit with truth. There are so many lies that people are buying left and right. We've just listed several, several of them already. But John says this in chapter 3. I love how he says this because he says, The light, capital L, that's Jesus, the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's a new infomercial on that I was just thinking about as we're reading this together right now. and I'm, It's uh, one of those security lights. Have you seen this where the instead of like uh, going after the uh, intruder in your house with a gun, they've got this light that just kind of does a strobe thing. I keep waiting for the burglar to start breakdancing or something in it. But, um, it, you know, it's it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm looking at this going, you know, most people would see this infomercial and be come on. You think these bad guys are scared away by some light, but it works. That's why we have our motion lights outside of our buildings and our houses and things. Once the light comes on, the bad guy thinks, someone's going to see me. It's just a part of the nature. It's a part of the reaction of being able to get away with or think you can get away with what you're getting away with in darkness. One of the greatest forms of security that we have in this world is light. Now, I understand as the days get worse that that sensitivity to light is getting dulled. But still, it is the thing that the Lord is going to preserve and that the light that you and I bring shines a light in dark places which combats deceit. It combats lies. So for the last couple of months, we've been rolling out this idea This we're, we're moving to 750 and we're, we're saying it kind of in, in every turn that we can. It's keeping us engaged as leadership as to um, where we're going, what the real goal is. I've had several people just ask me, you know, it's funny because we've spent, you know, a couple of lengthy sermons rolling it all out. We've put some videos out to the leadership. We've got T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. And I'll still have people pulling me aside and say, what's, really, what's this stuff really about? You can tell me. Be honest. 
You know, 750, is that really a big number? What do you, what do you, you know, what's, what's the deal here? And, and it really is exactly what we said right from the outset. 750 is just a number. All it represents to us is not staying the same. And uh, do we think that the Lord's going to be happier with Faith Evangelical Free Church when it hits 750 as opposed to another number? No, not at all. But what we wanted to build this campaign on were the things that we think God has called every believer to do. And so we started off by saying that we're moving to 750 first by prayer. And that wasn't going to be a one-month initiative. This is the start to something that we want to build within the culture of our church. We've always been a church of prayer. But perhaps it was time for us to rethink about how do we engage everybody in uh, the practice of prayer. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but uh, we as people have um, really great um, starts to things. We have really great intentions. And we say, I should do fill-in-the-blank more. And it's very difficult to see those things through. One of the most common things in the church today that people say we don't, that they don't do enough of is prayer. So the leadership of the church got together and we started thinking about, well, maybe we can motivate God's people to pray more if they're praying with somebody else or we make it clear what they're praying for. And so that at the end of this year and hopefully even beyond that, people would look back and say, okay, I, I dedicated myself more to the power of prayer over the last 12 months. So a pretty simple concept, pretty faithful goal, we think. Um, and then we also, the second month rolled out this concept of if we are to be building a church that's ready to grow, we have to strengthen our forces within. So we want to improve our service here at Faith. And we've said that we have, you already saw a bunch of people standing up to get ready for VBS. We have people that work here at Faith. So many of you are serving in a lot of different capacities. But we knew that we had to get better at what we call these on-ramps. That is for the newer person at faith or somebody who's maybe been on the fence. When they say, I want to get involved, but I don't know where to go. I don't know what the Lord's calling me to. Or can we have a conversation about what I should do or something? We wanted to get better at making that an easier on-ramp to take. And so we rolled that out last, last month. And we said, we want to see 75 new people joining teams um, around the church that we can count on. We can put your name on the list and you're part of the team. And just in that first Sunday, we, we achieved half of that goal already. So for the next 12 months, we're going to be looking for those other 35 to 40 people, perhaps, that would continue to join our teams and continue to serve and, and get involved. And so the Lord is doing something just in the first two phases of this campaign that we believe is going to build up for success down the road. And then this last part that we're talking about is reaching. So we believe that the, the believer is called to pray, called to serve, and in particular within the context of their local church, and also to reach out and to be salt and light in their community, in the context in which they, they live. Rather than us huddling up in here and saying, boy, I hope the people come, I hope the people come, we're going out and bringing Jesus to them, and then they can come and worship with us. And so this is not something that we do naturally. You know, there's a handful of people that are like, I have no problem, man. My light, I want it to shine megawatt. And I'm going to, you know, in the middle of the break room, I'm going to say, hey, let's pray for my lunch here, this microwavable lean cuisine or something like that. I have no shame in it whatsoever. But most of us, when we get outside these walls, there's an intimidation factor that hits. There's a, 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 a fear of, well, I don't want to be corny or I don't want to be offensive needlessly or something. And, and so we talk ourselves out of being salt and light, at least to the degree that God can use us. 
And so this time, what we're talking about today is how do we get out and reach within the community? And there's a lot of different beliefs on this. A lot of churches practice a lot of different things. We always want to base all of our activity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could do humanitarian things galore that make us feel good and pat ourselves on the back and perhaps the newspaper will pick it up. I don't know. Have you heard of a newspaper? They used to put it in print and stuff like that and it's black and white, but uh, apparently but we could tweet about it or we could you know, be on Instagram with all of our things and, and maybe some of those things may or may not happen. But the point is we are not reaching so that faith feels better about faith. We are reaching because Jesus said we're salt and light. And so we already have a reach that's taking place, almost whether we want it to or not, if we're truly children of his. But what we're trying to do is emphasize the reach that could happen if you and I join forces and do this together. We live better in relationship to other people. We can prove that all through the scripture. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are a representation of the community that we have been created in God's image to need. I wouldn't go so far as to say God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are needy, but as we are created ones in his image and his likeness, he built within us a need for that companionship. Adam had a perfect relationship with his creator in the garden and he still needed a wife. You and I have been given the capacity to need someone that we can see, that we can be with to fill that. And so God wants to use that in a way that helps us strengthen our community, strengthen, and I don't mean community as in what you're picturing, neighborhoods and stuff. I mean the relationship that we have with one another. And he wants to strengthen this church built on those relationships. You and I live better that way. We pray stronger when we know others are praying with us. It's one thing to pray on your own. It's another thing to have that commitment of, yeah, I'm going to really wake up at four in the morning. I'm going to spend the next three hours in prayer and everything. And then that fizzles and, and fails. But all of a sudden a buddy says, you know, I need to strengthen my prayer life. Would you keep me accountable? I'm going to pray at least three times this week on my own. And I'm going to talk to you about it next week and see if I did what I was going to say. That sounds cool. I'll do that too. Why don't we do that together? Is there anything specific you want to pray about? And you know what it's like. Instant wind in your sails. Somebody's doing it with you. Being in relationship with other people fills out our prayer list too. We have somebody to pray for. We have others to pray for. And let me please give you a, a word of caution. If you are praying and you are to evaluate your prayer list and so much of it is about, Lord, this is what I need from you and I need strength from you and I need you to protect me and I need all that kind of stuff. And that's the extent of your prayer life. Your prayer life's already dying before you even know it. So much of what we should be praying about are the needs that we see right before us or around us or the strength or the health or the safety or whatever of other people that we care about. And so our prayer lives are strengthened when others are involved either with us or we are praying for them. We serve more diligently when we're on a team. We pray stronger on a team. We serve better on a team. That's just the way it goes. And so we're trying to create as many team environments as we can here so that your prayers, so that your service will be strengthened. And so why wouldn't we also include that we're conclude, I should say, that we're going to reach further through the efforts of doing it together as a team? 
So this is not a message that says, you individual, you take this salt and light thing more seriously and go out, grab some tracks on the way out. And the next time you're at the restaurant, pray over this and give them the, the gospel. And when you're in the lunchroom and everything, that's great if you do all those things. We want you to do all those things. But I'm telling you, those motivations die within a week or so if you're just doing it on your own. If the only communication you have about this newfound conviction that you have in your heart is just between you and the Lord, and he has given you other brothers and sisters in Christ to share that with and say, either will you do this with me or will you pray that I see it through, it's going to die very, very soon. And so the best form of outreach that we can have will be that which comes naturally with people that you can demonstrate love to or that you can team up and demonstrate love with. The Lord is going to grow his church, but he is going to do it through relationships because that's how he's geared us. So let me give you some quick principles as we wrap up our time here a little bit. First thing I would say about reaching through relationships, because we're saying team up with people to reach further, but also reach people through a relationship that you build rather than those one quick conversations all the time and say, good, I can get in and get out. I gave them Jesus, did my part. Now I'm going to go back to sitting on the couch, but instead share Jesus with the intention of God. If they respond and they need someone to show them the next step on the path, help me to be that person. First thing I would suggest is that you not fake it. What do I mean by that? And perhaps this is part of the sensitivity of the church culture I grew up in stuff. But you want to demonstrate godly qualities at home and not just necessarily your physical home address, but things closest to you. You want to demonstrate godly qualities at home first so that your reach is going to be genuine. Going back to my illustration about the class that I had in Bible college is there were so many of us that were so effective at saying the right lines and having the right personality. And some of these guys just had the the right look about them and they were very trustworthy, but internally were a mess. Or we've seen it so often coming up through the, the years in the church and stuff as you bring in the outside evangelist and the hundreds come to Christ or something, but, but what they're doing at home isn't working and all that stuff. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to think about, Lord, I, I know who I should be out there, so help me be that person at home. I want to be salty. I want to be tasteful to my family or to my coworkers or to the people that I live around, my neighbors, before I can expect to be salty to somebody I'm just meeting for the first time. I want to shine light at home. I want to shine light at work before I uh, think that I can do this in the context of like my small group or some outreach effort or something along those lines. Paul told the Thessalonian church this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So you've got this nailed. God's already told you you're supposed to love each other. I don't even have to overemphasize it. I'm going to anyway. But I don't have to overemphasize it because you're already doing it. He says, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And here's the part I underline in my notes because I want you to hear this. There's so many good things in this passage, but this in particular, I think, makes the point. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, for what purpose? So that you will behave properly towards outside, outsiders and not be 
in any need. Paul is saying this to a church. Almost every letter that Paul writes has an element of, of having to deal with persecution and the screws being tightened on the church and everything. And yet he still says, rather than saying, now I want you to face this bold like you're, you're about ready to get devoured by lions and everything. He says, after all the, my instruction to you, what I want you to endeavor to do is to work diligently to be faithful at the task that the Lord's given you so that outsiders, those that don't know your God, would say, well, I don't really know if I believe in all that Sunday stuff they do, but I know they're awesome at their job. I don't really know if I believe in all their Sunday stuff and everything, but I know that their, their house is in order. I know that their children are this, or I know that their discipline is that. So that you and I have a walking integrity outside the walls of this church that people would say, I don't even really want to hear about the gospel yet, but I do want to tell you that I respect the way that you live. And that it might start there, and then they might actually be intrigued by the strength that we get from the Lord enough to call upon him. And then again, you're there to show them how life is built, how real life is found through discipleship. So don't fake it. Be genuine at home, out there. And also don't farm it out. And really what I mean by this is to take spiritual responsibility of your environment. Now, I don't mean that every decision that somebody under your care makes is on you. Uh, we've seen this so many times in parenting where we've seen very diligent parents still have children that go wayward and stuff. And so we have to evaluate, did the parent do the thing that the Lord called them to do because the individual can still make their own decisions? Just like I wouldn't say to you, if you're going to take spiritual responsibility for your work environment or something, that everything that the lost do there is on you. But to actually come into that place and say, Lord, if I'm not here, the spiritual quality and the spiritual um, integrity of this environment goes down drastically. So because of that, give me an opportunity, Lord, to almost shepherd those that I'm with. Now, I have an example that I want us to see um, as we're wrapping up our time here that I think puts that thought together perfectly because sometimes we start to think, well, so what you're saying is now instead of doing my job, I'm going to just evangelize people. Well, that would undo what we just said out of 1 Thessalonians, that, that the, the word of God is calling us to not be slack on our job and let that speak for itself, but praying that that gives us the opportunity then to, um, to reach those that we work with because of our work ethic for the kingdom of God. So what we're about to watch is a, a, an intro to a series that I found a few weeks back uh, with a friend. We were getting ready to do a study, didn't know what we were going to do. Right Now Media is our online video library, and I'll talk about how to get access to that if you don't have it already. But uh, one of their big products, if you will, this is a, a Right Now Media original. For those of you that watch any Netflix things and stuff, that's you know, their original programming, and it's called Work as Worship. And I wasn't sure what to expect from it, but as I started watching it right from the get-go, this thing gripped me because I thought it put in perfect perspective what the average Christian should be thinking about as they go back into a secular environment, as they move outside the walls of the church. And so we're going to go ahead and watch this right now through um, the, the uh, prayer of a man and see how much of that relates to us.
I hope you're seeing a bigger calling this morning. No matter what your context is you're going back to, you can reach. And God has already put within you the light and the salt necessary to do so. We just have to be available more for him to use that. If you are um, not a subscriber to Right Now Media and you want to access videos like that or use that series or something, um, my email address might be on the back here. Is that possible? Not yet? Okay. So... uh, But uh, you can contact us here at the church. All I need is an email address to invite you to get a login access to Right Now Media. Here's what we're saying about relationships. We're encouraging the individual this morning, the individual here, to go out and see their role in the world around them as something that represents Jesus. But we're also challenging every team, every group that meets regularly in this church to think about what can we do stronger together? How can we reach further by doing it together? So it's a little bit of a weird concept, but we're asking every small group, if you're a small group leader or participant in this room this morning, we're asking every small group to say what over the next year can we do that might be an individual project or an ongoing endeavor that gets us out of the comfort of the group that we know and gets us outside the walls of the living living room we meet in? How can we be the church outside the walls of the church? And to find that one thing or that ongoing thing to participate in. If you're on a ministry team here, this is where it gets even stranger. You might say, oh, that's not a weird thing. Small groups do it all the time. We're asking teams of teachers and ushers and greeters and worship team and all that to think about the personalities in your team. Think about the resources you've been given. Think about the uh, context in which you live in. And do something together that says this group of people, because we know each other, And we perhaps will be bolder to go out and do it because we know each other and we're together. We're going to do something to reach into this community. 
We're not spelling out for you all the ideas that you can do that, but the staff is actually taking also the burden to generate new ideas every single week that might be of interest to you to do. Now, as you come up with those things, feel free to bounce them off us for ideas or to, to do what, what we do best as, as, as ongoing church people as we know what, what works well sometimes and stuff that we can lend our thoughts and creativity and resources to you as well. So that challenge is twofold for each and every one of us to represent, to be salt and light, but also for every team in here to take a project, take something and say, how do we represent my church, my God out in the community and let us know what you're doing. You know, we want to hear how it's going. We want to hear what uh, stories are coming out of that so that we can share with the entire congregation the successes as we continue to move to 750. Thank you so much for your listening ear this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, stand and we'll close our time in prayer this morning. God, we thank you, Lord, for using us to light up this dark world. Lord, we don't understand why or how, but we do know you've made it clear that you do. So we need to obey you. We need to humble ourselves. We need to ask you to do something supernatural with the fear that lives inside of us. And God, we want to naturally or supernaturally, probably more like it, represent you in our day-to-day. Lord, with everything that we do, if we're living well, if we're loving well, if we are uh, serving well, Lord, all of those things, God, we just pray that you would um, use those duties that you've given to us to represent you and to live like you, Lord, so that others will call on you as Savior. Lord, we thank you, God, for loving us and even speaking to us from the beginning that we could respond and find salvation in you. In Jesus' name, amen.